Hello, and welcome to The PA Way. I am your host, Allison Callahan, and each week I will take a topic from presentation to application. We are going to stick to the really important stuff. This is the information you need to study for your pants or panry, or if you're heading to the office or hospital to see patients. I'd love to hear your feedback. So send an email to allison, A-L-L-I-S-O-N, at roshreview.com. Let's get started on our third and final discussion of liver disease. We'll start on diagnostic imaging of the liver, touch upon treatment of liver disease, and then do a rapid review of everything that we've discussed in episodes one through three. So let's go ahead and get started with diagnostic imaging of the liver. Diagnostic imaging of the liver should be guided by your differential and also by the availability of obtaining the study. Right upper quadrant ultrasound is oftentimes our initial imaging study of choice. It's quick, it's easy to obtain, and can provide information about the appearance of the liver parenchyma, whether there are signs of dilatation in the intra or extra hepatic bile ducts, or if there is inflammation of the gallbladder. The signs of acute cholecystitis are gallbladder wall thickening, pericholecystic fluid. Other common findings would include gallstones and dilation of the intra or extra hepatic bile ducts. A gallstone stuck in the cystic duct will lead to increased pressure in the gallbladder and will cause an acute onset of right upper quadrant abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, and fevers. A HIDA scan, which is also known as a hepatobiliary scan, is the gold standard for diagnosing acute cholecystitis, but is a nuclear medicine study, which takes hours to perform and may also be less accessible. CT scan and MRI are also important diagnostic imaging studies, but can be costly and should be ordered based on the underlying indication. For example, an MRCP, which is an MRI of the bile ducts, can be helpful in diagnosing bile duct obstruction from cholecystitis or possible biliary stricture without the potential complications of pancreatitis associated with an invasive procedure like an ERCP. The treatment for liver disease needs to be individualized. It needs to be based on the underlying cause. Once you determine your risk factors and potential causes for liver disease, you can direct your focus to confirming your suspicions with the rest of your workup. Look for your patterns in your liver serologic testing and always compare to old labs whenever available. Order imaging to confirm or possibly to disprove the top diagnosis on your differential. Let's do a rapid review of some of the key points on liver disease. History is aimed at determining risk factors for liver disease. Physical exam should help answer one of the most important questions we ask ourselves as clinicians. How sick is this patient? Are they acutely ill or do they have manifestations of chronic liver disease? Physical exam findings included hepatomegaly, a protuberant abdomen secondary to ascites, jaundice, scleral icterus, nail clubbing, and leukonychia. We also discussed the serologic testing in liver disease. Remember that an indirect hyperbilirubinemia without any other signs of hemolysis is likely to be Gilbert's. I want you to think alcohol when you see the AST to ALT ratio is 2 to 1 or 3 to 1. 
Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is the number one cause of mild elevations in the transaminases with an ALT predominant pattern. Remember, ALT, the L, meaning that the ALT is more specific to the liver. If you see an isolated elevation in the alkaline phosphatase, the next step is always to check a GGT. If your GGT is normal and your alkaline phosphatase is elevated, you need to search for other causes of the elevation in your alkaline phosphatase. This would include things outside of the liver, including the placenta, intestines, and bone. In patients presenting with painless jaundice and an elevation in their direct bilirubin, consider an occult pancreatic malignancy. Severe elevations always need a prompt, comprehensive workup and consultation with a liver specialist. Our imaging of the liver should always be ordered to confirm or disprove the number one on your differential. Treatment is individualized and based on the underlying cause and extent of disease. Now that we've summarized the presentation on liver disease, let's apply our knowledge to a few more Roche review questions. A 43-year-old woman comes to the emergency department with a five-hour history of right upper quadrant pain, fever, nausea, vomiting, and anorexia. She says she began experiencing these symptoms shortly after eating at her favorite fast food restaurant. Her temperature is 38.8. Palpation of the abdomen shows voluntary guarding. Laboratory studies show leukocytosis with a left shift. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A, acute cholecystitis, B, acute pancreatitis, C, appendicitis, or D, peptic ulcer disease? The correct answer is A, acute cholecystitis. Remember that when a gallstone gets stuck in the cystic duct, this increases the pressure within the gallbladder, causing an acute onset of right upper quadrant abdominal pain, fever, nausea, and vomiting. The gold standard for diagnosing acute cholecystitis is the HIDA scan or hepatobiliary scan, but as a nuclear medicine test may be a little bit more challenging to obtain. If she had a right upper quadrant ultrasound, we may see dilatation of the intra or extrahepatic bile ducts, pericholecystic fluid, and gallbladder wall thickening. Let's try another question. A patient of yours becomes acutely jaundiced. She has had no contact with blood or bodily fluids, no contact with medical specimens or needles. She is sexually inactive. Which of the following is she most likely infected with? A, hepatitis A, B, hepatitis B, C, hepatitis C, or D, hepatitis D? The answer is A, hepatitis A. In episode number one, we discussed risk factors for liver disease. We discussed that hepatitis A is transmitted via the fecal-oral route. This could be through undercooked shellfish, a contaminated water source, but can also be seen in daycare center outbreaks. Hepatitis E also can be transmitted through the fecal-oral route. Hepatitis B, C, and D are all transmitted via blood or bodily fluids. Let's take that question one step further. Which of the hepatitis viruses is the only one which is a DNA virus? The answer is hepatitis B. 
That concludes our third and final episode on liver disease. Next week, we will start with a new topic, the PA way of covering acute kidney injury. My name's Allison Callahan, and I am your host of the PA way. I look forward to your feedback and suggestions for future topics. Please don't hesitate to email me at allison, A-L-L-I-S-O-N, at roshreview.com. 